Hello, and welcome to Let's Talk MedTech, the premier podcast for the medical device and diagnostics industry. My name is Omar Ford, and I'm the managing editor of MDDI, an online publication owned by Informa that covers the MedTech and diagnostics space. On this episode of Let's Talk MedTech, we're going to be discussing a collaboration between Deloitte and MedTech Innovator. Deloitte and MedTech Innovator, also known as MTI, worked together on a study that analyzed MTI's database of about 1,000 applicants from its 2021 Accelerator program and interviewed leaders from startups and MedTech companies that could be strategic acquirers. On this episode of Let's Talk MedTech, we're joined by MedTech Innovator CEO Paul Grand and Deloitte's Principal MedTech Practice Leader Glenn Snyder to delve into and to uncover some of the report's findings. Uh, it's an incredible conversation, and Paul and Glenn really dig in deep. It, this conversation lasted us about an hour, but it felt like we were talking for only five minutes. There was just so much to unpack and so much to talk about. And I mean, we talked about startups and strategics that are expanding beyond episodic care and procedures. We're talking about how medical technology is getting smarter. We're also talking about Series A investors that are looking beyond the proof of concept and how Series A rounds have fundamentally changed. Now, because the format of this episode is a little bit longer, we're just going to jump in with our conversation and we're going to get this started. So without further ado, let's talk MedTech with MedTech Innovator CEO Paul Grand and Deloitte's Principal MedTech Practice Leader, Glenn Snyder. Hello, Paul and Glenn. Welcome to Let's Talk MedTech. I'm so glad to have you all on uh, this episode. Hey, thanks for uh, thanks for having us, Omar. Yeah, thank you, Omar. Glad to be here. Yeah, th this is an awesome opportunity to talk about the partnership between um, the MedTech Innovator and also Deloitte and the study that you all have, have kind of compiled and, and conducted. I want to delve into that and, and talk about the origins of it. Uh, can you maybe give some background on this study and talk about how this partnership came about? Sure. So uh, why don't I start off? Uh, so MedTech Innovator, as uh, I think you may know, Omar, is uh, the world's largest healthcare accelerator. And um, we've been we've been doing this now for nine years. Uh, we've got a, a lot of companies that have applied to MedTech Innovator over the years, um, over 6000 companies that have applied since uh, since we got started. And um, and I've often looked at the reports that um, organizations like Deloitte and Silicon Valley Bank put out um, that look at the industry and what's happening in terms of funding and M&A and trends. Um, and I look at those reports and I always say, boy, like there's these reports are terrific, um, but they're they're generally reporting on, you know, the deals that are are highly visible. And there's, you know, as I like to say, kind of like there's that below the, the waterline uh, you know, data that's out there. And, and I think we're probably the best source there might be out there at what the med tech landscape looks like below the waterline, like, you know, the deals that aren't necessarily announced. And, um, you know, and this year alone, 
uh, in our in our overall global um, application pool, we had 1,800 companies apply. And in oh. our, our our U.S. program, yeah, it's a big number. And our, our U.S. program alone was over 1,000. Um, so, so Glenn and I uh, at Deloitte were talking in the past, and I was saying, boy, it'd be really cool to analyze our data and and get a sense, you know, just kind of get a lens on on where things were going. So um, I reached out to to Glenn, and you know, we had these conversations about you know doing some work together. And Glenn and I met, and then his team, uh, and, and we all met as a group to talk about you know what the possibility might be and collaborating on uh, you know a new a new lens on the innovation landscape. So you know that was that was the origin. And I don't know, Glenn, if you want to add anything. Yeah, and I, I would just add, um, yeah, you know, I, Paul, Paul and I have uh, run into each other for for years at various conferences and, of course, uh, getting to see all the innovators that, that go through the MTI uh, program. Uh, I've always been in great admiration of, of uh, what MTI does and what Paul is leading. And then, you know, simultaneous to that, um, about three years ago, Deloitte um, took took it you know, took uh, built a team really to look at the trends of where healthcare is going. And healthcare, like many other information-based industries, is being driven by exponentials. Uh, so, you know, what many would also call Moore's Law, but uh, but just the, the power of um, the semiconductor and everything that goes along with it. And so we looked at all the different trends that are kind of unraveling as a result of this, unveiling maybe the better word, uh, both market and and technical and social and policy trends. Um, And then also just looked at the fundamentals of the technology. So as as exponentials really affect healthcare for med tech, um, that really relates to sensors, uh, sensors that are gonna be on us, in us, around us, and measuring all kinds of different aspects of our health and the and the surrounding environment. And then interoperability of the data that comes out of that. And that and those trends are are moving um, pretty precipitously towards uh, a, a future state where we're gonna be able to do a lot better job of getting in front of healthcare instead of treating healthcare as a sick care model where we're reactively treating care that we can really focus on well care, early sure. detection and prevention. And um, so we were curious in looking at this database as to what are the innovators doing? Are they actually moving in that direction? And that was one of the big hypotheses that we had going into this study. Now, I want to get into the study, want to delve into some particulars, but I want to, first of all, talk a little bit about what we're seeing now with startups. And I I want to definitely use the C word here. And the C word is, as we all know, on Let's Talk Med Tech is COVID. (laughs) Whenever I I mention, yeah, that's what what it is. It's COVID-19. How are, and this can be purely anecdotal, but what are you hearing from startups? What are you hearing about maybe their challenges, their triumphs? What's the state of startups in med tech now under the lens of COVID-19 and the pandemic? Well, um, I'll uh, again, I'll start here. So um, there's a couple of things on the funding side. Sure. Uh, in terms of funding being raised, this is the best year ever for med tech. 
uh, in terms of in terms of funding raised, more money raised um, by companies uh, as well as you know the startups, and more money raised by venture funds that invest in med tech than ever in in the history of med tech. So I, I think the the pandemic has COVID, the C word, has uh, has certainly uh, opened up a lot of eyes to the power of of med tech and data and remote care and all the things that you know are really be- are becoming so critical because of you know the pandemic, um, and so that's really accelerated a lot of these companies and their funding. And you know, I just had a company raise a hundred million dollars today in our portfolio who enable uh, remote diagnostics, you know, blood diagnostics that normally you'd have to go to a phlebotomist to do, you can do at home yourself. Um, you know, and that's just one example, but that, you know, these kinds of startups are being accelerated. That's a company called Tasso, by the way. Um, so congratulations to Tasso. But, uh, but anyway, so I think from the funding perspective, um, they are definitely thriving. Um, but on the flip side, I think they have a lot of challenges that they never had before, one of which is talent acquisition. Um, COVID, on one hand, you know, has made remote work really plentiful and uh, maybe even um, desirable. Yeah. And so, you know, that's been good. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also made companies struggle to retain talent because people, you know, see other opportunities and it's easy to jump ship to go somewhere else, especially if they don't care where you're moving. And so um, I know it's a challenge that a lot of my innovators tell me about. Um, and we have 420 in our portfolio at this point. So, you know, I get updates from them. But that I think talent is the the number one challenge for companies, um, ironically, because of the pandemic. Yeah, and I'd say um, two things. Now, um, you know, one, just adding to Paul's points around the positives is that that the healthcare system more broadly has now seen the value of a new way to triage patients. Um, digital, <clears throat> excuse me, digital first, then virtual, and then physical. So digital being more of an app-based or algorithm-based interaction, then virtual face-to-face with a human being, but remote, and then and then physical. And and so that that has opened the the aperture to kind of redesigning of healthcare. That's creating opportunity for a lot of interesting innovation. Um, and in addition to the points of tension that, that Paul brought up, I would say the other area is clinical. So uh, increasingly, innovators need to prove uh, the value of their products uh, clinically and economically, and, and that's done through studies, and it's difficult to conduct those studies right now because of the lockdown on so many of the healthcare systems and just the availability of, of, of patients. So that's that's an additional complication right now. Yeah. No, I know you're right. And and I'll just add one more thing uh, to that, Glenn, which is, you know, I'll flip it to the uh, the glasses half full side, which is then you have companies in our portfolio like Medible who've you know raised like four hundred million dollars, um, the majority of which is in the last couple of years um, because they're running decentralized clinical trials um, and, and making it possible to do clinical trials in a much more efficient and um, remote way. So, um, you know, you're right that it, it becomes harder to go into an, uh, to a hospital with nurses and the people you need to go, um, you know, do some of these clinical studies. But, you know, then there's new models as well. So um, it's it, there's new tensions, but new solutions, too. Yeah. And, and, and thank you for saying that, Paul. That kind of brings us to our next question. And 
as we're delving in, looking into the, the study, some of the insights from the report show that startups and strategics are expanding beyond episodic care and procedures. And, and you've talked about, and, and you guys were talking about this a bit, but want to flesh it out a little bit more. What does this mean in a nutshell? And, and why do you think this shift is occurring? Is it all because of the C word COVID? Is it all because of that? Or has this shift been happening for a while, but COVID kind of uh, jump-started it? What are yeah, your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, Omar, thanks. I'll, I'll take a first stab, and Paul, uh, please jump in. Um, you know, I, I'd say this is a trend that's been going on for a while, and it really, um, you know, many people are talking about COVID being, you know, that's one of the silver linings has kind of been a catalyst in um, in in precipitating this this trend towards this future of health that I was referencing earlier, um, which again is is kind of that shift from the more sick care model to a well care model. So as we see companies that are expanding beyond the episodic care and procedures, they really are trying to take that broader lens of uh, looking at um, can we actually uh, um, you know, do things more efficiently, but can we actually do things more preventatively um, to catch things early um, and 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 be able to intervene um, early and in a less kind of hands-on and intensive manner? Um, you know, the other thing that contributes to these trends is is just is just a focus on outcomes, and as uh, traditional med tech companies have you know historically maybe had just a device now. Uh, increasingly, the healthcare system wants outcomes, and and so with that, um, oftentimes having to expand um, beyond just the device itself to you know maybe have a smart device uh, that generates data and information unto itself, but even more broad than that, having a solution, not just a product, and that uh, that breadth uh, can then enable more of an outcomes focus uh, as well. And then final point would just be. With all that, it's requiring companies to take a broader lens of not just the episode, but the overall patient journey, too. So, again, looking for ways to be able to optimize the episode itself, but to even avoid the episode where possible. And certainly after that um, that major treatment has taken place to to keep people on a on a healthy path, to make sure the recovery goes well, and to um, reduce readmissions and that and that sort of thing. So, so that that patient journey lens is 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 really providing that perspective on on outcomes uh, much more effectively. Yeah, and if I can add on to that, Glenn is is so right. I mean, that future of health lens that they've developed at, at Deloitte um, was something that you know I think was really. Um, it was innovative uh, in, in in coming up with this new view, and you know we've been able to prove a lot of that with our data, um, some of the hypotheses um, that they had, and and what's really fascinating, you know, Deloitte came to us when we started this project together and said, hey, um, we'd like to add a question to your application, um, which effectively you know is like a survey in this case, and the question was, you know, what aspects of the patient journey does your technology touch? And this is something, you know, we never asked people before. We ask them, you know, kind of categorically what they're doing, but we didn't, you know, break it out in this way. And so it's it covers everything from the prevention and wellness, then to detection and diagnosis, uh, treatment decision-making. So do we treat or not treat? 
Um, and then the actual treatment, so that's the sick care that Glenn was talking about. Um, and then finally, the post-acute monitoring and chronic care management that follows to keep people healthy and from going back to the hospital. And historically, at MedTech Innovator, we always, you know, I, I would say I would always think that most of the companies we interact with are, are in the sick care space, in the treatment space, because that's, frankly, where we as an industry, as the MedTech industry, really have focused um, and as, as Glenn said, you know, at Deloitte, they've been looking at this and saying, hey, but the future is changing. And the data that we got out of adding that question was just really surprising to me and that it was only 19 percent of companies applying uh, to our program, again, out of over a thousand, um, were actually in the business of treating people. Um, only 19%. And the rest of them were doing something else, all this other stuff we're talking about. So, um, you know, really, really fascinating data that the innovators that are out there, the ones that are making all these future products that are going to keep us all healthy and living longer, um, are focused on not uh, treating us when we're sick, but keeping us healthy. Do you think that that might tie into this overall shift in healthcare? Um, the patient is now becoming a consumer of, of his or her own health. And we're seeing companies develop um, devices, technologies more geared toward the patient's use so they can say, hey, my blood pressure was this at 2 p.m. and track it over time or or perhaps track some of, you know, their heartbeat rates and and, and things of that nature. Do you think that that falls in line with maybe a shift in how patients perceive healthcare and that patients are now becoming consumers in the healthcare model. Absolutely. Yeah. Con the consumer trend is a very powerful force that is um, also one of those forces we studied as, uh, about this future of health uh, trajectory that, that, that we're seeing as fundamental because, you know, consumers are experiencing control and uh, convenience in other industries as well, in retail and banking, and they're expecting that same kind of experience in healthcare. Uh, and the nice thing is that technology, meanwhile, is, is driving a tremendous trend towards simplification and, and frankly, miniaturization too. So you're able to increasingly get devices into the hands of a consumer, and we'll see much more of that over the coming decades uh, that will enable a consumer to, to do things that historically could only be done in a, in a physician's office or even in a hospital. And, and that, that's a very, very powerful uh, trend that, that's going to shape uh, the industry. And it's going to require a lot of the more established companies, too, to build some muscle in areas that they didn't have in the past uh, because they've historically been focused more on the clinician and physician as customers. Yes, yes, uh, definitely. I, I can't remember where I was or if this was an interview that I was conducting, but someone said um, to the extent of they said, hey, you can do your banking from your phone. You can check your social media accounts. You can do almost anything from that smartphone. Well, people want to be able to check on their health. They want apps. They want technologies. They want wearables. They want things that they can um, check on their health and do because they can do everything else 
from their phone, why not be able to to check up on their health, check up uh, on their, you know, their heartbeat rate or or their blood pressure or glucose levels? Why can't they do that on their phone? And there's a mindset that's coming in. And I think we're seeing it. We're, we're seeing a digital health explosion. And at first I thought it was just going to be wearables. But it, it's evolving beyond that in a, in a sense. And where it will end up, I don't know. Uh, I can tell you this. I'm one of those people that I look at my stats all the time and I get nervous. And if I see something off kilter, I'm calling the doctor and saying, hey, at 10 o'clock, this happened. Should I be concerned? No, Omar, calm down. It's it, it's normal. It's normal. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely with you. Um, uh, I think it's going to be a whole a whole uh, host of, of companies, whether they're wearables or or sweatables or swallowables or um, or uh, toiletables, whatever whatever the medium is, um, I, I I agree completely. There's all these really interesting consumer-facing technologies um, that you know. I, I for the first time ever, I hear people talking about healthcare like they do cars and and iPhones. You know, they talk about delighting the delighting the customer. Um, and that was never that was never the cards before when we talked about healthcare. It wasn't about delighting the customer. It was about you know keeping them alive. Um, you know yeah. you know I'm feeling better. But now we're talking about delighting them, and and that's a big part of it. And um, and I you know we're seeing all sorts of innovations coming, as you said, in digital health and uh, and wearables and and all sorts of interesting interesting new ways of of keeping consumers because that's really what they are, as you said. Mm-hmm. Glenn said, keeping them informed about the status of their health. I mean, I I went out and I bought the latest Apple Watch purely to keep on top of you know my my heart and everything else. I want to know I want to know what what the status is, and and I don't expect my doctor necessarily to look at the data yet, but mm-hmm. I want to look at it. And if I see something off, you know, my dad's had arrhythmias. I want to know that I'm okay. So mm-hmm. you know, I want to take control of that. I don't want to wait to go to my physical to find out I have a problem. So I'm with you. Agreed. Agreed. I want to switch. Um, I want to s- switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about um, what was said about the Series A investors uh, in the report. And one of the things that stood out to me was it, it sounded like something that I experienced when I first started reporting on MedTech. And that was about 2007, 2008. As you know, that was a rough time because, especially around the 2008-2009 time period, because the stock market market just uh, just went crazy. Housing market crashed. Everything was was just uh, it it was, for lack of a better term, and probably something my daughter would say, it was yuck in a sense. Uh, But when you look back then, the joke was, or the saying was that. The Series A was the new Series B, or rather the Series B was the new Series A, sorry. You had to be able to have more data up front, and the Series A was virtually non-existent back then uh, because no one wanted to take the risk. Are we seeing that trend reemerge? And if so, why? What's causing that to happen? And, and what does the report say specifically about the Series A investors in, in Series A rounds? Well, I'll start up here. Um, yeah, you're right um, in terms of, you know, some changes in these trends. 
Um, we saw some really amazing things when it came to funding. Um, uh, you know, and again, I'm talking about as somebody who I started my venture capital career. I was an entrepreneur first, and then I started my venture capital career around the time that you were writing, um, you know, those articles. This is back, and for me, it was like, it was back in like 2000 and 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 uh, four when I started venture capital, and uh, and then I saw the financial crisis, the same thing you were talking about, and how that really impacted things, and the Series A really dried up. Um, and that really caused this incredible crunch on on startups. Um, but you know, at the time, the Series A was when people were getting started, and then Series B was when they went to go do clinical work, um, and you know, Series C was for you know expanding that, maybe commercializing. Um, now we've got pre-seed funding, seed funding, Series A, Series B, and. The pre-seed, um, which didn't even exist back then, I guess maybe you called it like friends and family. You know, yeah. now now it's a formal thing: the pre-seed round, and then the seed round, and the Series A. Um, the fast it angel. It was called the angel round. The angel, yeah, like the yeah. angel. Yeah, like the angel round. Um, and there's still angels participating, but now you know they're they're in the seed and the pre-seed, um, which are definitely defined in separate things. Like people say, oh, I have to do my pre-seed before my seed. Um, the fascinating thing that, that we saw in this report was that um, in the series, you know, companies seeking a series A, so not the companies who had closed a series A, but the companies seeking a series A, the 66% of them were already clinical in stage, um, which, you know, to me is just mind boggling that, you know, at the seed stage, these companies are, you know, more than half of the companies uh, have clinical data, that they're already at that stage. Um, and so the seed round has become the new Series A. Uh, you know, in, in the old days, you know, right now, you know, um, people doing these seed rounds, we, we just had one uh, I was talking to today, and they had like a $4 million seed round. Um, and, you know, those are, so the, the financings are, the financings are happening, maybe the terms are changing a little about the nomenclature, and they're, they're doing them earlier. But, um, but the, the thing that I think is consistent, Omar, is that um, while the Series A, you know, there's tons of companies raising Series A and there's lots and lots of companies doing the seed rounds and so on, um, the transition from that seed to Series A, uh, if, if their first round was a seed round um, or if they started with a Series A, the transition from a Series A to a Series B, you know, that remains the valley of death. That remains the, the most challenging part for these companies because that is when, you know, the transition between those first rounds is when people expect you to have, have proof of concept, uh, data, evidence of some kind that um, what you're doing is going to work. Not just that you have an unmet need um, with, you know, a, a regulatory path that people understand, um, but you've got to have evidence as well to get beyond that you know, kind of, as you said, angel round and to get to institutional, you have to have clinical evidence or at least that bar has been heavily raised. Um, you don't have to, but, you know, the majority do. So um, I think that's that's a huge change in, you know, the bar has really been raised for that for that Series A uh, in a way that, as I said, I, I certainly was not expecting before we took a look at this data. Sure. And, and don't forget, uh, once you get past the Series C, you go straight into a SPAC. <laughs> That's right. Uh, that's right. That's right. And you know, and and by the way, you know, uh, again, I, you know, I was talking to one of our companies earlier today, and 
um, and that was Metable, who I mentioned earlier. And she, uh, the, the CEO, Michelle Longmire, was saying that, you know, she's making the point that those early rounds, that angel round uh, and that early then round after that was the hardest money she ever raised. Mm. And, you know, getting people, you know, not just to buy into her vision, but, you know, with enough money to, you know, move ahead, you know, those kinds of things. That's that's the most challenging time for these startups. Um, and she said, ironically, doing my Series D round was the easiest money we've ever raised. Um, and that, you know, investors were were fighting uh, to be in that round and, you know, and competing to be in that round. And, um, you know, it really is those early stages that, you know, where these companies um, will will fail because they're they're not able to raise enough capital. And, and that's, you know, it's that earliest stage that Series A remains the, the biggest challenge or, or the Series B if they started with an A. Sure. Do you think that? Do you think that COVID might be impacting, and maybe it's too early to see that, but maybe the issues with the pandemic and, and clinical trials and clinical work being uh, a little bit spotty at times, do you think that we'll see any negative impact from that uh, in the future or have we seen any so far in terms of funding rounds or financings? You know, I, I mean, I, again, I'd say that COVID is – COVID, you know, it, the thing that it's done is it's gotten investors used to investing in people over Zoom, um, yeah, and taking exactly. and taking board meetings over Zoom, um, which you know when we first when the pandemic first hit, that was like the one of the first questions I asked a bunch of our uh, investor friends, uh, and we know a lot of them was you know would you invest in a company without meeting them in person. Um, and in the beginning, everyone was going, no, 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 we'll still, you know, we'll still find a way to meet before we close and all that. Um, and today, a lot of investors are happily investing without even meeting people in person. Um, now, I'm sure they'd rather meet them in person, but, they, you know, they're closing rounds all over the place over Zoom. So I, I think I think COVID um, has has made it a little bit easier for um, for the democratization of investing. There's a lot more investors investing in healthcare. Um, who are all over the place, um, both geographically and, and technologically in their backgrounds um, and sophistication in their backgrounds. Wow, Paul and Glenn, this is an incredible conversation. I'm really digging it and I'm finding out what startups' needs are. And this is, uh, this is just incredible. There are so many good findings that are coming out of this study. But before we go on, I want to take a brief pause and talk a little bit about a medical device in diagnostic industry, MDDI. Yes, MDDI is a resource exclusively for original equipment manufacturers of medical devices and in vitro diagnostic products. The goal of MDDI is to help industry professionals develop design and manufacture medical products that comply with complex and demanding regulations and market requirements. It's also a place where you can find a lot of content regarding the medical device in diagnostic space. So if you want to find out about that startup or you want to know a little bit about that large cap company or you want some professional um, insight uh, from people out there, from key opinion leaders, this is the place to go, mddionline.com. Yes, that's mddionline.com. Now, back to our conversation with Paul and Glenn. 
let's talk a little bit about startups choosing a less burdensome path. Um, when we're talking about th this in the report, do we mean regulatory? Yes, we mean regulatory. Yeah, okay. Uh, I've got a funny story to tell about this too, uh, but but go uh, go ahead and, and yeah. expand if you don't mind. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so specifically, um, what we were talking about there was the question of what what regulatory path are people pursuing. So you know, in the case of of med tech, you've got your your pick between um, being, I guess, unregulated if your if your technology allows for that. Um, or if you're maybe a digital solution of some kind that doesn't require it, um, or you know you're going to be a 510k device, um, maybe which is you know the least burdensome, if you will. Um, then de novo, a de novo device, which is a little more uh, burden on the evidence generation. Um, a PMA, which is you know the the most sophisticated and more most rigorous. Um, you know, with randomized controlled trials and all the things that go into a PMA. Um, and, uh, you know, again, one of the one of the interesting data points that we found is that um, most startups were choosing uh, a least burden, a less burdensome pathway. Um, so, you know, either unregulated or 510K. And, you know, again, really, really interesting there because, you know, from a value perspective, and I mean, clinical value, uh, and I mean, um, you know, shareholder value, uh, the ones that offered, you know, historically the most value are the the higher bar when it comes to regulatory, the PMA path, the de novo path. Um, and yet most of the companies are skewing to the either unregulated or the 510K. Um, that's the majority of what's out there and what's been funded already. Um, and again, not that it offers no value, but it just offers a lot less value when you have a 510K device that effectively is telling people I'm no better than what's out there um, or I'm, I'm no different, I should say, than what's out there. Maybe you're better, but you're not different. Um, and it poses that, that, you know, that reimbursement challenge of saying, well, if you're not different, then why should we give you any more money? Um, you know, that's the that's kind of the implication. So, you know, people have to come up with good stories as to why they're why they're novel and why they deserve, you know, at least as much money or more. Um, but that again, you know, that was a little bit surprising, um, although, you know, ultimately, you know, whether or not this plays out to be problematic, I can't really say it's just it's just more, again, a surprising a surprising finding that, that very few companies, you know, relatively speaking, are choosing the higher burden. Yeah, and, and I'll just add one perspective, which is the number of applicants that had said, um, you know, a regulatory approval pathway is not applicable. So meaning they were not pursuing any FDA uh, regulatory approval was about a quarter of the population. And and the you know for a future version of the survey, I'll want to ask them. So is it your intention to enter the market? with no regulatory approval and then develop clinical data so that you can then get a regulatory approval for for something further down the line or uh, or you know or do you have some other plan so it was intriguing had i known that the the response would have been that 
that big in that category, I would have asked uh, some additional questions. Uh, something, Paul, that we need to uh, field for the next round, right? <laughs> yeah, let's, uh, we better do that quickly because we've got applications open. So, uh, yes, yeah. we will add that on, Glenn. That's a really good point. But you're right on because that is that is something that we do see a lot, that people enter you know, they say we're going to start off unregulated and then go regulated. We're going to start off consumer and then go regulated um, because ultimately consumers do not like paying for their health care. Um, and the uh, the reimbursement and payment system that's out there that pays for value um, is a lot better equipped to do that. And with, you know, with better with better uh, better dollars. So um, I, I do think that that is a path that a lot of these companies ultimately will flip. But, you know, you're right. The data will tell. So we got to ask that question. Yeah. I, I, you know, I'll add this. I can um, I can remember in several times this has happened. I can remember interviewing that young entrepreneur, that entrepreneur that says, hey, I've got this innovation. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Or, you know, I, I it's, it's just going to change the world or. It's just going to be great. And they're coming from a different industry. They're coming from more so from the tech side. And then they get to the regulatory pathway. And, and, and when I start asking them questions about that, that's when we really have a, a, a moment. That's when, you know, the, the, pre, the, the, the script is flipped. They open up and they say, you know, Omar, I don't know how. You know, they just pour their hearts out to me and they and they say it is just hard. It is just difficult. Not saying that FDA, that regulatory pathways are, are, are bad things, but not saying that at all, not knocking the FDA. But it's so different from the world that they come from. So they have to go toward the lower hanging fruit. But this moment, the moment when you say, hey, how's it going with the FDA? That's when. Everything changes. The interview changes tone and you really get them to open up and just say, you know, it, it's been a journey. I'm not used to this. I'm coming from another industry. Why can't I move this as quickly over here as I would be able to on the tech side? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And in fact, you know, one of the things that I, I, I say all the time about MedTech Innovator and why we exist um, <laughs> is that we're, we're helping to solve for for generally bad guidance and bad advice given by uh, early investors and uh, and others in in various ecosystems who don't know a lot about bringing medical products to market um, and they advise companies to get to market quick and you know uh, don't do that FDA thing if you don't have to and uh, you know you can quickly iterate you know get out there with an MVP and then you can iterate and do a new version you know stuff you do in tech. Um, and they don't see why you can't do that in healthcare. But as you know, I think the three of us know, uh, you can't do that in healthcare. <laughs> you yeah. really can't do that. Um, yeah. And um, and it doesn't. And, and you know, and in fact, you know, it's a killer for a company if they come out with a with a, a, a really a non-meaningful indication um, and get approved. You know, with the intent of then saying, okay, and then we're going to expand and we're going to go after the meaningful indication. Um, but we're just going to get to market quick with something, you know, that's that's in a you know easy path and smaller. That strategy um, generally leads to failure because people shrug their shoulders and say, we're not interested in that thing you brought to market and we're not going to give you any more money. Um, so, you know, that that pathway doesn't work. And 
Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of the investors, you know, not just the entrepreneurs, but a lot of the investors investing don't have healthcare expertise. Um, so, you know, that's one of the reasons we exist. We have a lot more, but um, but that's definitely something that we see as a major problem out there in, in this innovation landscape. Um, it's just bad advice when it comes to regulatory. Remember when remember the time when you went to Europe, you got a CE mark first and then you came back to the FDA. Right. Yeah. It's time to remember those days. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago. It wasn't no, that long, not that long you know? ago. You know, no, yeah. that's 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 flipping now for sure. Um, but but yeah, that wasn't that long ago. It was like, oh, we'll go where it's easy. We'll go to Europe, um, you know, get CE marked and then come back here. But uh, that's changed. I think the bigger issue now is um, is not so much getting the regulatory approval, but getting reimbursement. And yeah. 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 Yep. That's right. I was at I was at Biomed Device Silicon Valley, and someone uh, bought this up. He said, uh, "You used to be able to." go to when, when you designed a device you used to try to get approval for from fda and then you used to try to get approval uh from the doctors you know the key opinion leaders to get your device now you're trying to get regulatory approval for reimbursement so reimbursement is kind of that key that key pillar now that everyone's going toward instead of worrying about of course you worry about approval and you want acceptance but reimbursement is is so much it's key right now it's huge yeah Yeah, it's everything because the doctor is not the decision maker anymore Um, it's the person writing the checks and that's usually not the doctor so uh it is definitely um it's definitely a world in which payment reimbursement is the number one concern i think that all investors have and frankly, uh, you know, the CEOs and founding teams of these companies should have, if they don't already, it's certainly something we we drill into them, is that they can't think in that linear, you know, fashion that you just described, where you go one, I do this, and then I get approved, and then I get, uh, you know, dot. you can't do that. You have to be thinking with payment in mind from the very beginning. Um, you know, our, when I was a VC, you know, the common the common feeling at the time was, you know, like, oh, we'll get the thing approved and then somebody else will figure out that whole payment thing. Um, <laughs> that's not that doesn't work anymore. Um, you got to figure out payment from from day one. So, you know, we, we build a whole value program into MedTech Innovator to you know have people who are on the market access reimbursement side sit down with these companies at very early stages and, and blaze that path, you know, figure out what is this? What is the clinical evidence? needed for validation um, of the market appropriateness and the value for the market versus just regulatory approval and fda to their credit has um, you know developed a whole program with payers um, where they bring them in they optionally give you the ability as an innovator um, at your pre-sub stage to involve payers so even before you've done your clinical studies they bring payers into the discussion and let the payers say, this is, you know, fine. If that's what FDA wants for, for regulatory approval, that's fine. But here's what we're going to need to um, to eventually make the decision about reimbursement. So you collect that data at the very beginning uh, and not, you know, and, and don't get that at the end when it's too late. Um, so, you know, big, big yeah. change. And this is going to be even more complicated as, as the healthcare model does flip to more of a prevention rather than an intervention uh, state because 
you know, at, at this point, particularly in the transition period, um, nobody wants to spend more on, on, you know, diagnostics that don't have an immediate economic in, impact. But as diagnostics increasingly get towards early detection of things that could be, you know, years off in terms of their, their substantial costs, and in, in some cases could actually drive costs up on the earlier stage, they won't see the true ROI on that for, for, for many years. And of course, um, you know, many, many parts of the healthcare value chain are pretty short-term focused in terms of that ROI. Um, so that, so that's, it's, it's, it's a challenge, uh, and, and an opportunity for those innovators who really articulate their value proposition well and focus on it right from the start. Well, want to dig into this part of the study that's talking about the medical device technology getting smarter. And we've touched on a little bit of that at the, uh, at the beginning, but want to go back into it. What is the data on that and, and what's happening on that front? Are, are we seeing more smart devices? Is that the route that a lot of the startups are going now? Or are we seeing uh, uh, are we seeing a reduction in the traditional devices? Um, I'm going to say dumb devices, uh, you know, without Wi-Fi capabilities, so to speak. Um, are, are we seeing a reduction in that coming from entrepreneurs now? Yeah, the, you know, of the um, thousand or so uh, companies that were surveyed, about 70% of them said that they had, that their product was digital or had a digital component to it. Um, so pretty substantial percentage. Um Overall, 28% uh, said that they had AI or ML, machine learning, uh, artificial intelligence or augmented intelligence or machine learning, just to make make sure we don't use algorithm or um, um, uh, acronyms here, um, you know, which to me would indicate more of that smart, uh, smart capability to the device. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a quarter plus and, and then the other types of digital components that that we did look at were more, you know, is it a mobile platform? Is it wearable? Does it have a sensor? Uh, you know, does it engage telemedicine, you know, uh, AR, VR capabilities, things like that, which are, are really kind of augment, make that virtual experience uh, more, um, more robust. Um, those were the other dimensions of the digital component that we looked at. But, you know, from my perspective, um, the, the smarter the, the 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 elements that make a device smarter is what gets really exciting because that is that drives the potential for the device itself to make a diagnosis and and that capability um, can put technology in the hands of a layman that otherwise might need uh, a specialist to operate it and and to really drive insights from it, right? So that gets really exciting when you start to uh, change technology in that way. You can really start to democratize, simplify, and and change the way that healthcare is delivered. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely with everything Glenn just said, and um, and, and you know, and, and thinking about the the digital component, you know, it's ultimately about data. Um, is what we're talking about. And, you know, you've heard that expression, you know, data is the new oil in uh, other businesses. It's the same here in, in medical technology and healthcare. Uh, those payers and, and clinicians as well, 
they want data. You know, they want to know what's happening with patients, um, what's happening with, you know, uh, people before they become patients. You know, they're trying to monitor them and stay on top of them. And um, and and that's critical. You know, it can no longer be uh, an industry that, you know, again, just focuses on this little episodic quick, you know, acute event, it's got to be longitudinal where we're looking at things. And so getting that data, you know, I, I am seeing companies now that are data first uh, and the device is secondary. Um, you know, they're saying to, in order to achieve this outcome, we need this data and that will support our decision making, as Glenn said, and this will, this will, you know, support our ability to keep that patient from having a problem. Um, and that's the data we need. How are we going to capture that data? The device becomes, you know, the secondary consideration. But the device, excuse me, the data is the is the primary consideration um, versus the device. You know, before it was like, oh, we'll build a device that'll do some of this stuff, and oh yeah, maybe it'll generate some data too. Um, so it's completely flipped around, um, at least for this new generation of innovators. Um, this is the way they're thinking. Um, and even in things like we have a company called Oso VR in our portfolio who um, does surgical training through VR. And, you know, when, you know, we first started talking to them years ago, it was a surgeon who was also uh, a video game developer um, at the same time who had this two, you know, things he was trying to marry together, Justin Barad. Um, and in the beginning, it was like, oh, this will be kind of this interesting thing to, you know, train, train surgeons um, and and it's evolved into being the best platform. I think the data now they've done mo- many studies to show it's the best way of training surgeons. Um, and, you know, and by the way, who wouldn't want their surgeon to be trained on a simulator uh, before operating on people versus, you know, going out the gate uh, training on on people, basically. And, it ta- you know, it takes hundreds of, of procedures to get good at something in many cases. And there's a lot of people doing it for the first time on humans. So um, this is. This kind of thing, when we think about medical device technology, it's, it's it's so much more than just that, you know, implantable navigation or, you know, surgical, you know, uh, uh, robotic system that we're talking about. It's all these other things, the VR and all this, this is all part of what we consider to be device technology these days and is fundamentally changing, uh, you know, our industry forever. Oh, wow. Yeah. It will be interesting to to see where we stand um, next year uh, with the survey. And I'm assuming, of course, there will be future surveys. This is probably going to be an annual thing or so or. Yeah, we hope so. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, the final thing, and I know our time is running short, guys, but uh, just give a, a sales pitch about uh, MedTech Innovator and, and talk about its importance, uh, if you will, and and uh, what need it serves for MedTech companies. Sure. Thanks, uh, Omar. So MedTech Innovator, as I mentioned, is uh, an accelerator, but we're not the classic thing you think about when you think of an accelerator, which is usually, um, you know, uh, a couple people with an idea trying to, uh, you know, prove out some thoughts and, you know, come up with a business plan. In our case, we're a downstream accelerator. We're for companies that have been formed. So they've left the university, they've left the lab, they're not a science project anymore. Um, And now they've got some early funding, whether it's heavy grant support or um, that seed round or pre-seed or maybe even their series A. um, And 
they're on the journey, right? They've got the team, they've got the right on medical need, um, and they've got some evidence that uh, shows that this this is actually going to work. Uh, whether that's bench data or animal data or even human data, they've got something that shows that this thing in a really, you know, uh, you know, opportunity to make an impact is going to work. Um, and now they want to make sure that they actually make it to patients and that they actually make it to the market with uh, a value proposition that will support payment and reimbursement. And that's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of opportunities for failure along the way. And so what MedTech Innovator is, is an opportunity for companies to partner up with the strategics who ultimately will probably be their partner anyways, um, down the road. It's very rare that these companies come to market solely by themselves. Um, so it's an opportunity to partner up early. Uh, we match up the startups with the strategics for a mentorship program. Um, there's also competitions that are part of it. Um, that happens at the end of the program. But the mentorship, the actual program itself, um, is what we consider to be the prize, even though we'll give away a million dollars in non-dilutive funding at the end. It's the program. It's that the relationships, the ecosystem, um, the peer network that is really the most value for MedTech Innovator um, and for the companies that participate. I mentioned it's incredibly competitive. Um, huge number of companies apply and we only accept about four percent. Um, but that said, um, you get great exposure in the process to all the key stakeholders. We have, you know, 500 plus people who will be reviewing for us um, in this upcoming cycle and their investors and their strategics and their uh, clinicians and, uh, you know, healthcare payers and, and others who are all part of that process. And they get to meet these companies um, and, you know, we'll have hundreds actually that we'll invite to pitch in various pitch events. So it's an amazing journey. It's a it is a it is not like a one time thing that, you know, a lot of people just see the finals competition. They think that's MedTech Innovator. It is a whole program. There's a lot to it. Um, but I think uh, ultimately it provides, you know, just an incredible ecosystem of support for the most promising companies, uh, most promising emerging companies in healthcare, and there's no fees to apply. There's no equity you have to give us. It's, uh, you know, we're a nonprofit in structure. So um, this is all about improving the innovation ecosystem. And we've got, you know, great support from our corporate partners and a lot of the federal agencies to, to do that, to make sure that this technology actually reaches patients and with the maximum value possible. So that's MedTech Innovator. And uh, companies interested in applying can go to medtechinnovator.org slash apply and uh, find the application and you know information about the process. And they can certainly reach out to me um, or other members of our team. I'm Paul at medtechinnovator.org. Um, and uh, we encourage everyone to apply. It's a it's a great process. You know, we support everybody from that pre-seed stage all the way through Series C. Those companies are all eligible to apply. And Glenn, your uh, sales pitch for Deloitte or how you can help companies? Well, um, Omar, it's it's a tough question. Deloitte is the largest professional services firm in the world. We, uh, it's that's that's our greatest asset um, in terms of being able to do um, you know many many things for uh, for companies. It also becomes a branding challenge to be able to uh, uh, you know talk talk about specifically the things we do. So we do a lot. We have a dedicated med tech practice, uh, and we do. Um, 
you know, everything from strategic uh, corporate uh, corporate strategy through to, uh, you know, very tactical execution and implementation technical types of uh, programs across, you know, tax audit, um, risk and financial advisory and consulting. Um, so I, uh, you know, feel free to stop by our our MedTech um, page on our Deloitte um, website and check us out. Uh, and uh, you can always find me on LinkedIn as well. Um, so uh, welcome to field any inquiries from from folks. Uh, but we're uh, very committed to this MedTech uh, space and are excited about the future prospects for the industry, given this really you know, fantastic trend towards more decentralization powered by technology. Sounds great, and that's awesome, guys. Uh, Paul Glenn, thanks for stopping by. Let's talk medtech. Uh, love this conversation; it was awesome. Thanks so much for having us, Omar. Yeah, thank you, Omar. Really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, yeah, we have to do this again for sure. Sounds good. Love <laughs> yeah. to, love to do it. All right, thank you all. I uh, appreciate it. Take care. All right, thank take care. you. All right, happy holidays. Same to you.